Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, how are school boards adopting to the COVID-19 situation? We'll talk with representatives from the Hamilton Board and the Thames Valley Board in London about reducing class sizes and a number of other initiatives. The U.S. has given emergency approval for blood plasma to be used to help hospitalize COVID-19 patients. What's this all about, and is it a brand-new treatment? We'll get you some of the details on that. And with the school year approaching, some parents are opting for their kids to learn at home. How is virtual learning coming along? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. School boards are very concerned about uh, what's going to be happening with opening, especially since the education minister and the premier a couple of weeks ago basically threw the ball right back at uh, each individual board, the local boards, and said, well, it's up to you guys. If you want to change our plan, you can do so, but you're going to use your own money to do that. Uh, and with September fast approaching, a lot of parents and students are getting busy, getting ready for the new school. Teachers and other educational workers are feeling that they have to really rush now to get everything done. Are they ready? Well, Global's Dave Woodward has done some research on this, and he says the short answer is, yeah, they're worried. The system is doing the best it can given the circumstances, but it's still not safe. That from this educational worker who says she thinks school boards should delay further. In a perfect world, yes, but at the same time, these kids need normalcy and structure to some degree. For her, handling going back to school shouldn't be rushed. I was of the opinion that they don't go back. Um, so that these things can be done properly without without being rushed. She says she doesn't think the boards of the province could have started a back-to-school plan any earlier, but she worries they don't have the specifics yet on what back-to-school should look like. Dave Woodard, Global News. Kind of sounds like the minister's kind of flying by the seat of their pants here, doesn't it? Well, what kind of pressure does that put on individual boards? We're going to give you a couple of perspectives on that. Alex Johnstone is the uh, chair of the Hamilton Board of Education here in Hamilton, and uh, she joins us to uh, give us an update. Alex, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Good morning. You had a meeting yesterday. Uh, you've got the, the, the new normal, I guess, as far as the ministry is concerned. That Look, at if you guys want to make changes... Uh, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to go into your reserves. Uh, you got some money, I understand, from the province, but nowhere near what you were asking for. So um, our our board had uh, three significant developments last night. So last night we allocated our reserve funds in order to reduce in-person class sizes at the elementary level with a specific focus on kindergarten as well as grades four to eight where there is currently a class size average and not a cap. Our board also passed a motion requiring uh, students from K grades K to three to wear masks. Previously, uh, they were exempt from, from that direction provincially. And we also passed a staggered start in order to ensure that we do have the time that it takes to have a, a slower start and um, a smoother start and a more controlled start. And also to ensure that we receive all the information that we require from the ministry, including the outbreak protocol, which we are still waiting to receive. Isn't that rather troubling? That uh, Because every teacher I've talked to and a lot of the parents I've talked to, anecdotally here, Alex, is saying, well, what if uh, there's a spike? What if we start to see new cases? What's the protocol? And and you guys don't have that answer yet. I mean, th- that's that should really be one of the first things that you think the ministry would have addressed. You know, Bill, last week, um, in the, or the last couple weeks, but particularly last week, I was hearing a common theme hearing a lot of panic. I was hearing a lot of panic from parents, from staff, from students wanting to know details. And that's where 
we need to receive our outbreak protocol from the province. We were supposed to receive that last Wednesday. Uh, to date, we have not received it. We're hearing that we may receive it this Wednesday, although that's not um, not confirmed. And uh, with that, I, our principals and our staff are back in our schools and they need to um, have that information uh, first because we are understanding that the outbreak protocol and its draft form is around 80 pages. We're hearing that from our uh, peers in the public health end. We have not received copies of it ourselves. And once we receive it, our staff actually need to put site-specific health and safety plans in place where they go through the schools um, and they put all those details together. Then they need to train up their staff, and then we need to be communicating that respectively to our communities. There's a lot of questions that people have, and certainly um, our parents deserve to know. I think, too, Bill, when I'm looking at other countries uh, over in Europe, and they have started to go back to school over the last two weeks, and I've seen some of the, um, I guess, the, the reopening there has not uh, necessarily gone as smoothly as they would have liked. Pictures of crowded hallways, confusion. Those are all things that we want to avoid because we are in a pandemic. We want to ensure that our students have a, a smooth reopening, that parents know what the expectations are, that our staff know what the expectations are so that we can provide um, and ensure the highest standard of safety. The common thing I'm hearing from a lot of the parents, Alex, and I'm sure you've heard the same comment as well, is we're asking parents to make a decision right now, usually this week if they haven't already. Mm-hmm. Are you sending your kids back or not? Or are you going to opt for the for home learning, the, the virtual learning? How can they make that decision? How can they make that absent of this information about what the board's going to do if, or what the, pro- or the province is going to do in situations like this? I mean, they're dragging their heels on this, uh, and parents are wondering, you know, I, what, I don't know, are my kids going to be safe? And if there is a problem, what happens right now? That's extremely important for them to make that decision. So we're, we're hearing that from a lot of parents. And this past week, um, our chairs across the province had a conference call with the minister and chairs across the province raised that exact concern. Parents want details. They need to know exactly what the school is going to look like so that they can feel confident and safe in their choice. I think, though, so, that's why we're seeing over 20, just over 20% of our parents so far have indicated that they will be uh, learning remotely or they're choosing that option at, uh, in our elementary uh, panel. And with that, um, I, you know, I, I understand completely why, why many parents are choosing to make that decision. I think that at the end of the day, though, um, that's where parents do need to have the decisions and do need to have the information. And that's where um, locally we're saying that we also need those details. And until we get them, we're going to have a, a slower reopening, a more controlled reopening to ensure that our students uh, and our staff and our parents are all familiar with the details. So when they arrive to the school site, it can be done so in an orderly fashion. I've got about a minute or so left. I wanted to get a couple of details on on some of the stuff that you did talk about last night and and decided as policy. Uh, Because of the fact that you've had to dip into reserves here, uh, you've hired uh, 56 new teachers, uh, 47 new classrooms for kindergarten students, and 36 new teachers and 30 new classrooms for grades 4 to 8. Are those going to be one-year contracts? Because my understanding is that next year all bets may be off and you may have to go back to normal, which I think everybody would welcome. But in, in fairness to the people that you've hired right now, do they understand that this is probably just a short-term situation? 
So this is a one-time only situation. We mm-hmm. do not have permanent funding to date uh, coming from the province. And in fact, we actually have to re- repay back our reserve funds, which is going to create a problem later on down the road. Mm-hmm. Our board has been very vocal that we had uh, wanted from the ministry one-time emergency funding. And um, without that, um, you know, come later in the school year, if we have other significant emergencies, such as if we have a roof leak or a boiler break, we'll have to respond to those uh, when we get there. Our board did retain just over $2 million in our reserves um, in case we have future uh, emergencies this year so that we at least have a small pot of money. But it, it puts our board in a very precarious situation. Alex Johnson from the Hamilton Board of Education, the chair of the board. Alex, thanks for keeping us up to speed on everything. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more between now and the opening of school. Uh, good luck with this, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. Alex Johnson from the Hamilton Board. Uh, in London, a similar situation. I, I want to talk right now with uh, uh, Craig Smith. Craig is uh, with the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. In fact, he, with the Thames Valley uh, teacher, he is uh, the president of the local in the London area. Craig, thank you for joining us on the program. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. You're, uh, I'm sure you're going to echo a lot of the stuff Alex just told me, uh, and we've been talking to a number of teachers uh, in, in different areas of the province over the last couple of weeks, uh, and as uh, our Global's Dave Woodard talked about in the beginning of this segment here, uh, the, the consensus is that, look, we're not ready for this. We don't even have all the answers from the ministry right now. This is, <laughs> you, you must feel like you're going into the classroom with a blindfold on at this point, Craig. Yeah, I think that's an appropriate way of putting it. It, it seems to be planning on the fly. And, you know, I I guess the concern that we have is shared. I mean, I think it's across the province in every district and in every uh, elementary teacher local. Teachers are feeling the same. Boards are feeling frustrated uh, in the lack of a plan and and the slow response. I mean, the government, to be fair, has responded, but it's been intense pressure from parents, intense pressure from teachers, and, and I would say some intense lobbying on the parts of the boards to even get them to move where they have. So yes, it is frustrating because there are so many things to be done. The time is short, and um, yeah, it feels like we're a bit blindfolded at this point. Well, the thing that really bothered me, and I'm, I'm sure it does you as, as somebody who's there in the classroom, is you're looking for leadership here from the provincial government, and specifically from the ministry. The, the province uh, is supposed to step up. Education is their responsibility. Uh, they came up with a plan that had all kinds of problems and all kinds of holes in it, and the response to that pressure that you just talked about was basically said, all right, you guys want to do it, do it on your own dime. We're out of here. Uh, and, and I know the Thames Valley Board is doing that. It's at considerable cost to the board. Uh, Hamilton Board is doing that. Everybody's in the same situation right now. But, but you're basically, you know, trying to put duct tape around their plan instead of them coming back and saying, okay, we can do this better. Yeah, we're, we're having to bail out the boat, but uh, we've been given a little sand pail to do it. It yeah. does feel overwhelming. And to be fair, since the beginning of this, so I, I would go past, the July 30th announcement of this current plan, there were current, there were other plans that were announced and directions changed going back into June by, and the end of the June. And so the game that we have been playing with the boards, and we have been working cooperatively with the district school boards to try to make sense of what the messages are and to, to make a plan that is workable and safe for everyone. And the frustration, of course, is that the messages keep changing. So, yeah, I, I do agree that... Um, you know, we are a little bit behind the eight ball in this regard. Leadership, uh, yes, from the government is required, but this is one of those situations where actually throwing money at the problem may actually help. 
Um, you know, one of the things that we need uh, are, are smaller groups uh, of elementary students, call them classes, clusters, whatever you will. Um, the plan that we're going through in Thames Valley, our board is tapping uh, into its reserves to the amount of 2%. Um, that will still leave us about 350 teachers shy of what we probably need to get the social groupings in the schools down to a level where we can actually uh, contain and isolate uh, and, and do all of the things that we've been told to do through the pandemic. So we're still short. And if we're short and, and we're a fairly large board, you can rest assured that the struggle in smaller boards uh, is, is, uh, is, is even greater. As this stands right now, and I, I compliment the, the Thames Valley Board and, of course, the London Board and all the, all the others and the Hamilton Board that we've talked to over the last little while about trying to put this thing together. And, but as, as you go into the classroom in, in a couple of weeks now, are you going to feel safe? Given what we well, know about COVID at this point, Greg, about social distancing, uh, you know, about testing and, and all of this sort of stuff, is, is it going to be a safe work environment? And is it going to be a safe learning environment for the kids? I think any plan, no matter how well-funded and how, how, how well put together, there is an element of risk given the nature of the COVID-19 virus and, and how this pandemic is, is proceeding. I think there's always an element of risk and concern, no matter what the plan. But I think the issue is that the risks being there, uh, a better plan with the, the precautions and, and uh, other principles put in place would allow us to contain and deal with uh, those situations. I think what we what we have right now is a situation that doesn't make people feel 100% confident because uh, you know it, it's full of gaps, and and we could be in a situation where we have large number of kids in contained spaces for a prolonged period of time. Everything that runs against what we've been told we need to be doing to help uh, quell and and plank the, the the spread of this of this horrible virus. And we're going to be basically in the equivalent of a cruise ship going nowhere. And and that, I think, is going to be the problem. It's a huge gamble for the government. Everybody hopes that this goes well. Everybody hopes that nobody gets sick uh, or worse. Uh, but when you're putting all of your money on red, <laughs> it's a high-risk gamble. And, you know, we will see, uh, unfortunately, how that goes. So I think in answer to the question is, no, I don't think a lot of our members as teachers feel safe, not only for themselves and their families, but in particular for the students who are in our care. Got about a minute left. I'll ask you the same question I asked Alex Johnston just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, in at the absence of, of a contingency plan from the province, and that's where that has to come from, from the Ministry of Education, what if you see spikes in your board? Uh, you don't know what the protocol is. Do you shut it down? Do you isolate? We don't know. There's a lot of speculation at this stage, but we're just days away from the opening of school. That'd be information that you'd probably like to have right about now. Yeah, I think that information would be very, very valuable. But the problem, I think, that the boards find themselves in is all of the responsibility for this has been divested to them. It's been dumped on the school boards to deal with. Um, but the fact of the the fact of the matter is, it's the ministry that's driving the bus. I mean, they're calling all the shots here. So you know, even even to the even to the question you're asked about a protocol, what happens in a school? Uh, if we have uh, an outbreak uh, or or a number of cases, the the closure protocol hasn't been determined yet by the minister uh, ministry, and we sh- uh, understand not shared with the boards. Take that to a step higher. What is the protocol to uh, shut down a board if, in fact, we have a widespread outbreak in number of schools? 
that key piece isn't in place yet. I'm assuming they will have it in place shortly, but even then it will require at this stage the permission of the ministry to close a school and the ministry to close close a school board should that um, should that happen, which runs counter to the fact that district school boards are self-governing and accountable to uh, the public uh, in they serve. So it's a real it's a real challenge. Which only underscores uh, what we've been saying on this program, that they waited way too long to even come up with their initial plan here. I mean, the end of July for a September opening was ridiculous. They've, they've had since mid-March to do something about this. And that, that conversation and that dialogue, which, by the way, should have taken place with boards and people like you, uh, should have started a long, long time ago. Right. I, I, I get the benefit of hindsight. Everybody knew there would be some plan for reopening at some point. Nobody uh, argues that. I mean, I think that's what everybody would like to see. We want to make sure that the plan is well-funded and and safe for all teachers and students. But you're quite right. With the benefit of hindsight, that planning and those commitments should have been started in uh, April. And as to the consultation, correct, there has been very little consultation uh, at the provincial level between our affiliate uh, affiliate, uh, federation and and the ministry uh, or the government. locally there has been nothing but conversation and collaboration and i think that's the thing you know that that piece is in place give us the tools we'll finish the job craig smith a uh, local president with the uh, elementary teachers federation thames valley teacher of course in the london area uh, good luck craig we'll stay in touch and uh, let's keep your fingers crossed that everything works out thank you very much bill it was a pleasure you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml i want to delve into some of the uh, news we're getting about COVID-19, of course, we're concerned about uh, spikes of the second wave that a lot of people are anticipating uh, could be happening uh, this fall. But there's some treatments and some news on the treatment front and, and on the vaccine front. And uh, we have to separate the politics from this for, uh, from the reality of what's happening in the medical world. Uh, the U.S. has given emergency approval for blood plasma to be used to help hospitalize COVID-19 patients. This is actually not a new idea. We're going to give you a couple of different angles on this. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Anna Banerjee uh, with the uh, University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine. Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Great you could have you uh, back on the program. Oh, no, pleasure to be back. Thank you. This, as I mentioned in my opening here, is not a new idea about using blood plasma. How did this develop? Um, they've been using blood plasma for centuries uh, for, for different kinds of things. And in fact, now what we, what we take out of the plasma is actually the antibodies. And so before, if someone had, hep- had exposure to hepatitis A, you give them hepatitis A immunoglobulin. If someone had exposure to, to tetanus, you would give the tetanus immunoglobulin. Uh, um, immunoglobulin. So the, the things have been used for a, a virus called RSV. We give uh, the RSV antibody, which is basically synthetic, uh, but it's, it's antibody against the RSV. So it's something that is used, but it's not usually used for treatment. Uh, it's usually used for prevention. And, and the, the, the antibodies actually come from people that have already had whatever, in this case, I mean, you've given us a couple of different examples there, but these are, these are people that donate? That's right, yeah. So okay. when you're, when in COVID, in the COVID situation, it's people who have had COVID before, they take the plasma out and basically extract the antibodies, and then they try to use those antibodies uh, for, uh, for whatever they, whatever the intention is. Okay, and it has proved 
effective in past in, in fighting and, and, and preventing a, a number of different things that you've talked about. Uh, I think the confusion a lot of people have, and, and this is why I'm glad you could come on and talk about this today, uh, because the way the announcement was made in the States the other day ago by, by the President, it was as if this was a brand new technology, and this is groundbreaking. It's, it's really, I don't want to say it's old medicine, but it's something that's been tried and true, but it hasn't been tried and true with COVID yet, has it? Not to any great extent. Yeah, it hasn't been tried and true. There's been no case control trials. You know, maybe people have gotten, uh, have been given the antibody, um, but we don't know what would have happened if they if they weren't given the antibody. You know, some people got better, they would have gotten better anyway. That's why you need to compare the people that have, uh, you know, COVID and who get the, the antibody and people who don't, and that way you see a difference. So right now there's, very little evidence that it actually works in COVID. And it's just like uh, the situation with hydroxychloroquine, uh, mm-hmm. a malaria drug. There's no evidence that uh, that it worked against COVID um, or minimal evidence, if any. And But it was promoted by the president as being, you know, a, a, a solution. It's a good drug. He, he's, in fact, taking it when, you know, there's really no science behind it. Which is something you've talked to us in the past about, and I'm glad you brought it up, because it, there's a process that has to be followed here. And I That's know right. that Trump Trump was complaining and whining about uh, the FDA a, a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw that story, uh, suggesting that they're dragging their feet on, on vaccines uh, because they, he wants it done in time for the election, which tells me it's for purely political purposes. But if you skip a step or if you shorten one of those steps, uh, that can cause huge problems. Right. So if you have a vaccine out there and it causes more side effects, than potentially COVID, you're not going to have people use it. And and then for successive vaccines that actually work and have less side effects, people are going to be less likely to use it. So you have to make sure when there's a vaccine or anything that you're using, that first of all, it's safe. And that's why you have very rigid processes in place. Now, I think this vaccine, you know, as it's the the regular vaccine, not antibody vaccine, as as we are going through the different phases of the trials, that they are expediting it more than they normally would, and hopefully there will be a vaccine out, and who knows how long, but in you know in the next several months, uh, and there's an urgency to it, but that doesn't mean you skip the steps because if you skip the steps and people get sick or die from something, then then that's really um, it doesn't support the vaccine and it doesn't. Uh, support science. Uh, so this, uh, you know, taking plasma from people uh, and using it, could it be used as a preventative? Possibly. That's probably the more, um, the better use of it, where, you know, people who are extremely high risk, maybe healthcare providers or elders in in uh, long-term care facilities, if you give them an injection with an antibody, that will probably provide them some protection. And, you know, because we do that currently with the RSV vaccine, we give that to the most uh, uh, vulnerable babies to prevent them from getting serious RSV. RSV is like influenza, but it tends to affect young kids. And so could that be something that they use? Yes. But, uh, you know, that I think has a theoretical basis and we have lots of vaccines in place that, that work that way. And there could be studies to see if this is something that could be helpful you know with a vaccine or without a vaccine like maybe ahead of time but there's no evidence really to say that this antibody would work as treatment for someone who's really critically ill with COVID. 
which is, I think, something that causes a great deal of concern, and I think justifiably so, uh, because the medical ex experience and, and the medical uh, opinions that we've heard, including from you, doctor, is that if the answer is maybe yes, maybe no, that's not good enough <laughs> to, to actually no. say, let's let's market this in, in mass quantities. So, uh, because the work hasn't been done yet, the test hasn't been done yet. Yeah, and also the current uh, antibody, it depends on people donating their blood. You know, and maybe at the beginning people will be willing to donate their blood, especially if they've gone through COVID and they want to help other people. But there is a limited supply right now or a limited supply of people willing to do that. If they, if they think that this blood is going to be used and it may not work, why are they going to donate their blood? So you want to make sure that, you know, that, that before we start asking people to donate their blood, that, that this is something that, that actually makes a difference and potentially could ameliorate the disease or save lives. Uh, there was another wrinkle yesterday, Doctor, and I, I just wanted to throw this out here and, and get your opinion on this. Uh, we heard yesterday that some, I was in Hong Kong, I believe, that somebody has actually now tested positive for a second time. Uh, was one of the in the original wave, I guess, back in March or April, and and now has the virus once again and has COVID nineteen again, uh, which has raised, uh, from what I've read anyway, some concerns in the medical industry that, that maybe maybe the antibodies that we develop when you have COVID uh, don't last that long. Yeah, and it's possible, like influenza. That's why we need to to change the uh, the makeup of the influenza vaccine moving along. But there are other studies that say you know that some people. That get the uh, get influenza, uh, sorry, get COVID uh, with the the vaccine testing. They seem to have some immunity now. Is it long term immunity? We don't know because the you know it hasn't been out that long. Um, so I think these are things that we need to monitor. And if you've had COVID before, um, will that give you partial immunity? So if you get it the second time, you're not going to be as sick. You're not going to get. You're not going to spread it as much. Or is it just as bad? Or is it worse? Is it going to you know cause an inflammatory response in your body and your body overreacts and you have, uh, you know, some of these stranger symptoms that go with COVID, it's really, it's really hard to know, but that's something that needs to be monitored. I'm hopeful because when, when I see, and in, in from lots of people I've, I've talked to, there, there are a lot of healthcare providers that are not getting so sick with COVID, but when they go home, their families are all getting sick, but the, the person that works in the hospital is not, and I've seen this many, many times in the past several months. And so I, I think that some of the people um, have been exposed to our coronavirus at some point in time and have uh, some cross-immunity. So that makes me hopeful that there is some protection if you've had COVID before. And, you know, based on, uh, you know, one case so far in 8 billion uh, people, you know, I think it's important to look at that and monitor for it. But, uh, but I think that... Um, we have to also keep that in perspective. Which I think really just underscores what uh, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. You've got to do the work. Uh, you've got to do the research, and you've got to cross every T and dot every I before you can actually say, yeah, I think we've got something here. That's right. That's right. And we're not there yet. No, we're not there yet. The other example, of course, and I think you and I talked about this last week when the news came out from Vladimir Putin, there's a trusted guy, uh, that they have a vaccine in Russia. And, and now the indication I'm hearing is they may well have developed some form of vaccine, but they haven't done stage three testing yet. In other words, he's just let it available to them. And I guess he thinks that's going to be stage three testing, but scientifically that's not the way you're supposed to do it. No, no, because I think he's going to give it to doctors and, and nurses and teachers, the frontline people, 
Uh, I'm not sure if it's volunteer or if he's mandating that they get the vaccine. But if those people get really sick from the vaccine, then, you know, it, then that's not good news. I mean, you, you want people to volunteer with informed consent, understand what the vaccine's about, not be persuaded or obligated to take something, and then find out that the vaccine um, has significant side effects. And so th- that's why we have a process in place. You know, it's important, you know, I think because there's an urgency around the world to expedite the process, we still have to go through the process. Doctor, as always, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Take care. Dr. Anna Banerjee uh, from the Faculty of Medicine at University of Toronto. And now, as we mentioned, there, there's been a lot of research that's going on about, about blood plasma and how it relates to COVID-19. And a lot of that uh, on this side of the border is happening at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, and to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Donald Arnold, Associate Professor uh, at the, the Department of Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Well, some great work and some very important work that's going on here. As we just heard from uh, Dr. Banerjee uh, from U of T, uh, this is not a new concept, but relatively new to COVID-19. You've been doing a lot of work on this, Doctor. Where are we as far as uh, what, it, going along in this process of, of developing some efficacy for, for what might happen here? Uh, right. So uh, maybe just to step back a minute, just so, so people know what, what we're talking about. So plasma... Um, convalescent plasma is blood plasma that's been collected from people who've had COVID-19 and recovered. And in there, we presume there's some active ingredient, we think, called antibodies that might be able to help other people who have uh, infection in the hospital. And so what we're doing and others have been doing around the world is collecting plasma from people who have recovered, um, getting it ready for patients who are in hospital and might need it, and using it in the context of a clinical trial, which means we don't really know if this works. It's an experimental therapy at the moment. Um, and so giving people access to it in the context of a trial will help them maybe get access to it in general, but also help us understand if it works or not and it is something that we should be using kind of more globally. I want to ask you about process here, if I could. And, and again, this is something for we in the lay world maybe don't have a full understanding of. Uh, about how important it is to, to go through stage one, stage two, and stage three of the process, especially stage three. And maybe you could talk about how necessary it is to have what they call a placebo group. I mean, some people are going to get the vaccine. Some people are thinking they're getting the vaccine, but it's only placebo. But that, that data that you get from that is extremely important, isn't it? Right. Let me clarify just a minute. So you're absolutely right. The, the essential piece of this is to do the study correctly. And the study is what we call a clinical trial where you have a group of patients who get the treatment and then another group who don't get the treatment. Now, that could be placebo, like you say, or it could be standard of care, which is kind of routine what they would normally get in the hospital. Okay. And the value, the really important value to having that control group is so that you could say, well, the only variable we've changed in the mix is whether or not they got plasma. And if they do better, in other words, they're not in the intensive care unit as much or they don't die as much because of the plasma, then you could pretty much say that with certainty. But you really have to do that controlled clinical trial first before you can really get there. 
to to ensure that because in the absence of that, as I understand it, uh, you know, if if everybody just gets it and and they get well, you say, well, maybe they're going to get well anyway. Maybe maybe the plasma had nothing to do with it. We you can't say with any certainty without that other group there, can you? Right, that's exactly right, and and that's a bit of a trap that uh, people could fall into. There's lots of information out there on people who have received plasma in COVID and in previous infections, but. If you just look at the group that got the plasma, they look like they may have done well. But you really don't have um, all the other parameters controlled for in a similar group who did not get the plasma um, to say if there's been a difference. And the other part of this that's confusing in a way is that that standard of care or the control group is a bit of a moving target. So as things progress with the pandemic, we're learning better to treat people like we know that there's a few treatments that might actually work um, we, we're better at um, supporting them through you know uh, a really bad illness let's say in the intensive care the way they're positioned how much oxygen they need whether or not they get intubated a lot of those a lot of those things have, have changed even in the last three to four months and so even without doing anything else the the outcomes may be better just because of those supportive treatments but so that makes it even more um, important, really, to do the controlled trial with something like plasma. So you can say, by adding plasma, it did or did not make a difference. I, I've seen a couple of interviews with uh, some of your uh, fellow doctors from the States who are concerned about the announcement that the president made that he's going to make this stuff available before they've actually finished, you know, as you say, those comparative studies. Uh, and they suggest, uh, almost uh, as, as a consensus opinion here, that for him making that announcement, it's going to be very difficult for them to do a controlled study now because a lot of people aren't going to volunteer for it. They just no, to give. He says it works. Just give it to me. I don't want to be part of the study. Just give me the the the, the plasma itself. Is is that a legitimate concern at this stage? Uh, yes, I'd say that's a very legitimate concern. Um, you know, the 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 truth is that people want to do what's best for their patient, and um, doctors who are out there on the front line. If they hear that there's kind of an approval from the FDA or or the authorities to say this is this is something that you can now use, um, people are probably going to use it, and they may have a lot of reservations about putting their patients in a clinical trial where some patients are going to get the treatment and some are going to get the control, either standard of care or placebo or some other control group. They may be very uncomfortable with that, and so I do think that. Um, this announcement is going to make doing clinical trials in the U.S. Um, more difficult than it was. But um, I'm not overly pessimistic. I think um, even up until yesterday, there was an ability for, for doctors in the U.S. to get plasma. It was just a little bit more restrictive. Um, this makes it a little easier. Uh, but still, there are um, centers in the United States, including folks who are collaborating with us, on our big trial in Canada, who are really committed to seeing this through um, and doing it right, making sure we know if this is effective before kind of giving it widespread. Uh, just uh, we've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, the importance of, of 
organizations like the F Federal Drug Administration down in the States and, of course, Health Canada here. Uh, I, I know that there can be political pressure on, on both sides of the border. We've seen this happen in other situations. Hey, to move this along, move this along. Uh, they invariably are adamant about this, which is why I was surprised that the FDA kind of gave this a blessing over the weekend initially because they didn't seem to want to, but they seem to have changed their minds for one reason or another. But following the process and making sure that everything is done before you can actually move forward on, on a, a new drug or a new treatment or something like that is has got to be part of a very important part of the process. Right. And I think we would be in big trouble if those processes were not in place. And I, I do get it that there's a lot of pressure to try to um, put something new out there cause, so that we can increase kind of the treatment options that we have for COVID. But I think there's just as much important to not do something hastily because we could be, you know, putting patients at risk if these treatments are not effective or potentially harmful. So um, I'm very proud of uh, what we've done in Canada. At Canada, uh, there's one clinical trial for all ward patients in Canada. I mean, it, it's the one that, that, we're, that we're doing. And um, what's nice about that is that there's no competition for trials. We're all unified. We're doing this together. There's access to the treatment in the context of a trial, which will help patients and will help the, the community to know if this is a treatment we should be pursuing for everybody. So I think we're making some good strides. It's going to be slower than we anticipated at first, but I'm confident that we're going to get there. Well, that's reassuring. And on that note, uh, we're just about out of time. Doctor, thank you for the great work that you and your team are doing uh, in collaboration, as you mentioned, with so many other folks that are trying to do everything they can to try to help, uh, first of all, treat COVID, and, and ultimately uh, maybe to get a vaccine for this too. Uh, continued good luck with the work that you're doing, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon as more developments happen. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Dr. Donald Arnold, uh, Associate Professor at McMaster University in the Department of Medicine, doing some uh, groundbreaking research on uh, the blood plasma for COVID-19 coverage. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of concern from parents that uh, we've talked to over the last couple of months now about the return to school. Uh, which may not be the answer for every family. Uh, a lot of trepidation about being in the classroom and, and whether or not boards of education have the resources uh, to do things like social distancing. I know a lot of boards, of course, have already gotten moving uh, face masks now for kids in elementary and high schools. That's a good move. But some parents, nonetheless, are simply going to say, I just don't feel good about this. So, well, the option then, of course, is going to be virtual learning at home. But even then, there's been some concern. Well, you know, I heard some kids didn't have uh, much success with that. Uh, is it really a viable alternative? Uh, well, let's bring in some experts to talk about this. Uh, David Hutchinson is a uh, professor in the Department of Educational Studies in the Faculty of Education Center for Digital Humanities and the Faculty of Humanities Director uh, for Brock University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. I, I'm glad you could join us and maybe uh, shed some light on what's happening here. Thank you. Uh, Let's let's talk about virtual learning as as an alternative, uh, and and where it works and where it doesn't work. We did hear an awful lot of concern from some students and parents of students uh, that tried virtual learning after the sh the shutdown last March. Uh, maybe you could address first of all what were some of the shortcomings and some of the concerns. Good to be with you, Bill. Um, parents should be reassured that the um, virtual learning or remote learning that's going to be um, occurring uh, this fall will be very different experience. Uh, than what occurred in the spring. What happened in the spring was that uh, schools were shut down uh, without any notice, of course. This was an unprecedented time, and uh, teachers, school boards, uh, parents, students, everyone was uh, not prepared uh, for that immediate transition to remote learning. There were no strategies in place. 
There was uh, no technology platform in place for students to switch from face-to-face learning to remote learning. Uh, there was no real understanding of the good pedagogical practices that should be put into place for students uh, to learn effectively remotely. Uh, so it, basically every teacher approached this and every school board on their own, trying different things out. And there was even communication from school, some school boards uh, about limiting instructional time. So that was actually a, a direct you know, communication that uh, there should be just limited uh, uh, instructional time for students in terms of uh, their synchronous learning time in which they're meeting with the, stu- the teacher regularly. That's going to change dramatically in the fall when there's going to be uh, a full a day of uh, 300 minutes of uh, instruction, either in synchronous or asynchronous, uh, for all students in, in school, just as there would be if they were um, uh, being taught face-to-face. You raise a very interesting point, and I'm glad you, you brought the, the the perspective from the teachers themselves into this, because I, I also heard that concern uh, from a number of teachers once they started to do this. They said, look, I want to help our students. I want to do what I can, but I'm not trained to do this. I don't know how to do this. So a lot of them are doing this whole thing blindly back in the springtime. That's really true. And I can tell you, as a higher education instructor in university, when a professor makes the decision to teach an online course for the first time, it is a huge transition uh, from teaching face-to-face in a lecture room or a seminar room uh, to teaching online. And a lot of work and preparation goes into it, not just in planning the course, but in also what are the best strategies for teaching. And, of course, that's teaching adults. You've got to add now uh, that uh, there's going to be different strategies for teaching kindergarten students versus grade 4 versus grade 8 versus grade 12. Uh, and so it just adds a lot of complexity, uh, and uh, a lot of thought has to go into it uh, in advance of actually tackling it. I mean, I've talked to university students that have done some online stuff, and with great success, as a matter of fact. But you're right; they're they're more mature, they're 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 more focused on situations. When you get into the junior grades, uh, professor, how do you keep the students' attention? So, in the new system uh, for the fall, uh, the government of Ontario has uh, rolled out a uh, memorandum, uh, which is available at the the Ministry of Education website, uh, which outlines the requirements. Uh, So, all uh, students who are being taught remotely will have 300 minutes of instruction. Some of that will be synchronous, which means that that it will be uh, face-to-face with the the teacher in in terms of uh, through the computer, Uh, and uh, it will be live, uh, and it will be guided instruction by the teacher. And then some of that time will also be asynchronous, which means that it's students working independently or in small groups on projects, but the teacher will still be there monitoring what the, that work is going on. So that's a huge difference in the spring. And so that will be the experience of uh, what uh, students have in the fall. Now, we don't know, you know exactly what the school day is going to look like for them. Uh, in their memorandum, the ministry gives an example of a 10-minute opening exercise that everyone participates in for a kindergarten classroom, followed by some small group work, etc. Every teacher is going to need to approach that differently depending on their grade level and their the students. But basically, the expectation is uh, that students will be face-to-face in front of their uh, computer or their tablet or laptop uh, from the beginning of school, whether that be 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., uh, to the end of school, and then with some breaks, of course, scheduled in between, just as there would be in class uh, for recess or lunch and things like that. Uh, so that that's what uh, we can expect. You used a phrase here that uh, some parents have raised a lot of concern about. That's independent learning. Uh, and the concern that I'm hearing is, look, at my, my son, daughter, whatever it is, doesn't have the discipline for that. They, they've tried that, and it just doesn't work. They, they need that closeness. But now you're telling me that even in those, quote, unquote, independent learning sessions, uh, the teacher's still there uh, and available. 
Absolutely. The, the government has set the expectation, basically, that uh, teachers, uh, just as if they were in face-to-face, uh, need to be present for their, uh, the students. Now, the challenge is, of course, if they've divided the uh, class of, say, 30 uh, into groups of five, so that means there's six groups, um, you know, if you're a teacher in a face-to-face classroom, you can be working with one of those groups, you know, uh, very closely, but still, teachers develop these skills, you're monitoring what's happening in those other six groups, whether the noise level is getting up, whether they're focused or not, right? So you have that ability to focus on what's right immediately in front of you, that group you're working with, but also be aware of the rest of the classroom and then be able to switch your attention to another group if you need to. That is a much more difficult thing to do um, remotely, especially if you haven't had practice with it. So this is going to be a brand new experience for teachers and students, and it's going to be difficult for them unless, until they develop some strategies to do that effectively uh, remotely, and they're going to have to rely on the technology having that ability as well to be able to monitor multiple groups that are working independently uh, online at the same time. So that is a, a fair concern about whether the, the on-task time by, by students when they're working remotely will be uh, quality time as, as we would expect it to be in uh, classes. This is going to be new for everybody, and I guess I'm asking you to speculate just a little bit, but what's the comfort level for teachers going to be as, the, as they move into this process with the changes as the ministry has made, or the new guidelines, I should say, that the ministry has made? Are, are they going to be comfortable in this environment? So I've heard some uh, from a number of teachers, and it's mixed. Uh, there are some teachers who are um, well aware of the risks of going back to class uh, in terms of uh, the virus, are making that decision uh, to do that anyways, even though there's opportunities for them to apply for these virtual teaching positions. And there's other teachers who are jumping at the chance uh, to apply for the virtual teaching uh, positions uh, out of health concerns or a chance to try a new experience, etc. So uh, it's mixed reactions from teachers. But what I think the basic reaction is uh, there's a lot of unknowns right now. Uh, you know, school boards are really still at the end stages of collecting information from parents about whether they want to send their children back to school or uh, have them taught remotely, and then they're going to, in many cases, have to restaff uh, a lot of schools, uh, depending on that. So many teachers don't even know what their assignment is for September yet, whether it's remote or in class or even what grade level, etc. So that has to all be sorted out, and that's when uh, teachers really can begin their planning, because they, they can't begin their planning until they know what grade they're teaching and, and what format as well. Mm-hmm. So those are important considerations. What are the... Uh, the, the provisions made for for uh, for special needs students i mean in the classroom environment uh there could be different protocols uh, oftentimes there are education assistants that are helping out the teacher in the classroom uh for some of the special needs students uh, how do you do that remotely virtually so the government of ontario in its memorandum did have a section uh does have a section on uh, special needs children and accommodating for them and that's a priority uh, whether uh, children are being taught uh, face-to-face or remotely uh, that's a requirement in, in uh, schools that they be accommodated so uh, teach, uh, students who have special needs uh, will um, have uh, accommodations obviously in place. They, they would have been assessed. Uh, there would have been a, a discussion with parents, specialists, teachers around the supports they needed. All that would be done within the context of face-to-face teaching. So uh, students have those uh, accommodations in place. It's really appropriate for face-to-face. Now we have this new reality of remote learning, uh, and so there's going to have to be almost a complete redo for a lot of uh, students who are, have special needs on what's the best way to serve them uh, within their uh, uh, remote learning context. Uh, the good news is the ministry has recognized this uh, in its um, guidance to schools, uh, and so there is an opportunity to accommodate uh, for that. So, for example, some uh, students with special needs 
uh, might uh, need uh, more opportunity to, uh, to work independently uh, because they might need more time to complete tasks. Mm-hmm. So there could be some adjustments uh, to the uh, requirement for synchronous learning uh, so they might have less uh, direct time with the teacher uh, so that they have more time to complete a task that's been assigned. Of course, the reverse could be true for some other students where they need more time directly with the teacher and that would need then to be managed. So, and my understanding also is that uh, there will be uh, board personnel who are specialists in special education that will be uh, consulting uh, not only with uh, in-class schools but also remote learning schools. Professor, for parents who are still at that point where they have to make a decision about classroom or or virtual, uh, where can they get information about this to, to try to assuage some of those concerns? So the best source of information is uh, the school board website for your jurisdiction, okay. uh, whether it be public or Catholic. Uh, they, all the school boards are um, putting up uh, the latest information on a near-daily basis. Uh, many uh, school boards are having uh, meetings with their school board trustees on a regular basis, too, and there are decisions being made there. I know in the case of Hamilton, that happened uh, just uh, yesterday. Yep. And uh, so uh, you know, some, uh, there might be some more information available on the website now. Uh, one thing I just want to mention about the uh, remote learning, the virtual learning, is that uh, most boards, and this includes Hamilton, are going to have a dedicated virtual school, especially for elementary. Uh, so that means that if your child is uh, being taught remotely, they will literally be in a, a different school than their, their home school or their, the school they go to in person. And uh, that uh, virtual school that they're in will actually be uh, staffed with a principal and a secretary. I believe there's an effort to get a little bit more money from the, uh, the ministry uh, to support that. But that's the idea, that they would be actually set up a whole new school and a uh, school kind of structure uh, so that parents have not only the teacher they can go to, but if they have concerns, they can raise them with the principal, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, that accountability uh, will be in there. And also the supports for teacher in terms of uh, that they have in a regular school. Very reassuring. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. As I say, it's a very difficult time for parents these days, and the more information they get, uh, the better decision I guess they can make in this situation. Really do appreciate your help today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's Professor David Hutchison from uh, Brock University, uh, and hopefully that's helpful. And I take his advice. If you're still unsure about this, uh, if you're in Hamilton, get a hold of the Hamilton Board of Education. We're in London, the Thames Valley Board, and uh, they've got all that information, I'm sure, on their website. So they just had that discussion yesterday, as you heard earlier in the show. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.